podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. What's good, boys and girls? Welcome to the Two-Footed Podcast. It is Monday, the 23rd of November. Hope your week has started well. We are brought to you by EPLindex.com in association with our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is, of course, a VPN provider, so do check out their services at LibertyShield.com and use my code EPLVPN to get 20% off at checkout. We had a busy weekend in the Premier League, so we'll get right into the games. They started in Newcastle on Saturday morning. Unfortunately for Newcastle, they didn't really bother to turn up. Steve Bruce set his team out with a back nine. Absolutely shambolic tactical display from Steve Bruce on the day. Far too deep. No ambition. 28% possession in the game. One shot on target. You can't play like that at home in the Premier League. I don't care who you're playing against. And I mean, let's be fair, Chelsea are decent. It's not like they're going to steamroll you. Newcastle, the complete lack of ambition in this game is what set them on the back foot. And Chelsea played well. Chelsea were allowed to play well. They were given ample opportunity to get comfortable on the ball, to move the ball around, to progress the ball from the back all the way through to the attackers. And Newcastle offered very, very little resistance. When you look at how Chelsea set up, with Zayic, Abraham and Werner up front, Mount in midfield with Kovacic and Kante, you knew that Mount was largely going to stay to the left, Zayic would drop in on the right, and Werner and Abraham would link up as a front pair, and that is largely what happened. Both Werner and Abraham had good opportunities early on, but Carl Darlow made a couple of very, very good saves. But he was let down then by Federico Fernandez, a very, very soft bit of defending He argued that maybe Ben Chilwell fouled him and maybe he did make contact with him, but there's nothing much in it. It's a soft own goal. It's a very disappointing bit of defending. And for a team set out to play the way Newcastle were, it really is a a bit of a death knoll on them. It's very hard to come from behind when you've got a back five, which is an out-and-out back five, two sitting midfielders in front of them, Jacob Murphy is one of your wide players who's largely been played as a wing-back in recent weeks. St. Maximum having to tuck all the way back because you've got him helping Jamal Lewis as Reese James bombs forward down the wing. And then Jolington stood up front by himself with nobody within 25, 30 yards of him. It was very similar to how we've seen West Ham set up in recent weeks, but much more defensive-minded. West Ham at least get runners going forward. They keep two players advanced. At most, you could say Newcastle kept St. Maximum sort of semi-advanced and then Jolington up front by himself. Um, Newcastle were just so sloppy as well. I, I don't understand why they continually tried to play out from the back. We saw three times at least where they attempted to play out from the back and just gifted the ball to Chelsea in good positions. Chelsea missed a number of good opportunities. I think Timo Werner had a little bit of an off day in front of goal. Otherwise, I do think he could have had two or three. Um, He's he's an interesting player. He's obviously a very, very good player, and he's had a decent start to the season without question in terms of goals. But he's missing a lot of chances that you'd be a little bit concerned about. And I did think that he missed a couple of early chances one of, one of them brought a really good save, like I mentioned, from Darlow. And then he missed a couple of real gilt-edge ones. And you wonder if the missed early chances were just playing on his confidence a little bit. Um, he did set up the second goal, though. A good run carried the ball about 60 yards to set up Tammy Abraham. But, but he did not beat a single man. He literally just ran through space. The only player that got close to him was Sean Longstaff. That was right on the halfway line. Werner only had the ball maybe 15 yards at that point. The only real opportunity 
where anyone got close to him was Longstaff. And for me, Longstaff, Longstaff has to foul him. He has to foul him there. He's not on a yellow card. He puts his hand out. He gets a hand on him. Just grab hold and hold on. You have to in that circumstance. Because otherwise, he's running into a massive gap of space right at your defense with Tammy Abraham in support. That, for me, is very, very disappointing from Longstaff. I think he needs to do much, much better there. I don't care if he even has to clip his heels or whatever he has to do. You cannot let him go by you in that circumstance. Take the yellow card. Get your players back in position. Keep it at 1-0. And hopefully, in those last couple minutes, you can put something in the box and create a little bit of something. Uh, Newcastle's only real opportunity or only real chance to score was a 25-yard belter from Longstaff with about two minutes left that hit the crossbar. And that was it. That was all they really managed to concoct in the entire game. Very, very disappointing performance from Newcastle. But a good win for Chelsea. A win that puts them in the top four. And they have stayed there over the weekend. So they will be very, very happy with where they are. I think... um, I thought the two centre-backs actually performed quite well. Zuma and Rudiger. They didn't have a whole lot of anything to do. But I thought aerially they were very dominant. They were quick. They were proactive rather than being reactive, which is often an issue with Kurt Zuma. He can be a little bit of a reactive defender. But all things considered, Chelsea go home very, very happy. For Newcastle, Steve Bruce needs to have a look at that game. That They cannot have repeats of that game. Not at home. And this is not the first time. We saw them against Brighton early in the season. Played exactly the same way. We saw them against United. Did exactly the same thing. And got thumped in both those games. Again here... It wasn't a thumping, but it very easily could have been. Chelsea had more than enough opportunities to really give them a pasting. Missed a bunch of good chances. Darlow made the good saves. If this game had ended 5-0, Newcastle couldn't have complained about it. It would not have flattered Chelsea, but it would have reflected how Newcastle played. After that, we moved on to Villa Park. Aston Villa playing host to Brighton, and we're back on the Brighton bandwagon. We are back on the Brighton bandwagon. I had given up on them. I'm back on it now. Uh, but let's be fair, they were a little bit lucky to get away from away from Villa with the three points. Um, early on, Villa lose Ross Barkley to an injury. And that's a massive blow. And it really did affect how they played the rest of the game. I did think Bertrand Traore came on and looked lively. But he looked like a guy that hasn't played a lot of football this year. He was a little bit rusty. His touch was a little bit off. Did have a couple of good sh- shots on goal, but not the player that they bought. He'll get there. Give him a few weeks. Needs to get his fitness and his sharpness back. But, you know, losing Barkley's massive. He's been great for them so far this season. Hopefully that's not anything that's going to keep him out too long, um, especially with the injuries that he's had in the past. You, you hate to see when he finds a really good run of form that he, this might affect him again. Um, I thought Villa were relatively dominant throughout the game, but they were very, very wasteful, whereas Brighton made much better use of the opportunities they did create. Early on, 12 minutes in, they get Danny Welbeck through on goal, running from his own half uh, after Adam Lallana releases him, and it's a really good finish by Danny Welbeck. A really, really good finish by Welbeck. Keeps his composure, lifts the ball over Emmy Martinez, I don't know what Villa were doing. Villa had all 11 players in the Brighton half in the lead-up to that goal. And not just in their half, like all of them 8 to 10 yards or more into the Brighton half. I really don't understand what that was. I'm really not sure what Tyron Mings was doing. Like how he allowed Danny Welbeck to be goal side of him that far from goal, I really don't understand. Uh, but like I say, well back, really good composure, really good finish. Brighton's defending for the Villa goal was just as bad as anything that we saw there, though. Um, they all seem to decide to go and mark the front post area. And Esri Cons is in about eight yards of space at the back post. It's a really good finish. Brighton need to work on things like this. Like they, They're playing three centre-backs. They are aerially dominant when... Dunk, who was back and was a big, big boost for them, and Webster in the team. But it's just, it's, it's really bad defending, really, really bad defending. And to be fair, for the the Brighton goal that wins it by Solly March, it's really bad defending by Villa again. 
And again, it's the thing I've been highlighting all season. It's the left-hand side of that Villa defence. The right-hand side is very, very solid. The left-hand side is not good in terms of positioning, not good in terms of closing the ball down. I don't think Mings reads the game particularly well. And Villa, a Brighton break down the right-hand side, it's a simple ball across. Now, Matty Cash should do a little bit better. The right-back, he needs to be closing down Solly March. March just walks onto the ball and passes it into the top corner. But in the build-up to the goal, Villa's defending down the left had not been good. Um, two late incidents. The red card for Tariq Lamptey, I think it's a nonsense. I don't think it's a red card. I don't think it's a second jello. I think Grealish makes an absolute meal of it um, and gets him sent off. And then Villa obviously get awarded a penalty. The referee has a look at it and overrules it. I think he made the correct decision. I do think the Brighton player got the ball first. So I do think that was the correct decision. It's a great win for Brighton, a badly needed win for Brighton. They had been really struggling to get get results lately. Um, But this win pushes them five points clear of Fulham. And in truth, you know, they should be a lot better off, but I think they'll take it. You know, they're two points behind Toon and Leeds, and I think they'll be happy with that because they'll be confident they'll win a couple more games coming up. And if they can do that, they can launch themselves into mid-table. So we are back on the Brighton bandwagon. For Villa, it is a massively disappointing result. They will have expected to win this game at home. But that's back-to-back home defeats for them now, having lost Southampton as well. And uh, that's something they're going to need to to address. But Villa, still a solid season so far. In eighth, in seventh place, 15 games, 15 points from the eight games. Their game in hand is against a really out-of-sorts Manchester City team. So if they catch City on the right night, you just never know. And if they were to win that, that would bounce them back into the top four, which I think they'd be thrilled with. But they'll be thrilled with where they are right now. The goal for Villa this season has to have been progression, and they have progressed massively from where they were last season. So credit to them. They're doing well, but that was a a poor result for them, a poor performance overall, uh, even though I do think they were the better team on the day for spells. Um, In terms of Brighton, though, like it's it's a great result, and it gets them back on track because... Things have been rough of late. Uh, We mentioned Man City and uh, City up next, away to Spurs. And it's a concern now what's going on at City. It really is. They get the big news during the week that Guardiola signed the extension. You expect that to give them a big boost. And it just didn't. I mean, they were toothless. I thought City dealt, or sorry, I thought Spurs dealt really well with any threat that City had in this game. I think they did a great job at neutralizing Kevin De Bruyne and minimizing the impact that he was having on the game. And I think if you do that right now, City don't really have a whole lot that they can beat you with. Um, Bernardo Silva had another poor game. And you were looking at that midfield before the game, De Bruyne, Rodri and Silva. And you're thinking, right, there's a load of creativity there. There's decent balance in that midfield. That's probably the midfield that Pep had envisioned post-David Silva. But it just didn't click at all. The lack of Sterling and Aguero is obviously a massive blow for them up front. But the the big problem is they've, they haven't replaced Leroy Sané. There's no outlet ball. Everything is very close quarters, short passing, kind of that, a real one pace. There's no explosiveness. There's nobody stretching the game the way Sané used to for them. Ferran Torres is a good player. He's not suited to that role. Riyad Mahrez maybe could play it, but they want him on the right-hand side, and he prefers to play on the right-hand side. I just thought City looked really stagnant. Spurs executed their game plan perfectly. Absolutely perfectly. This was classic Mourinho. They get an early goal. From Hyungman Son, it's a brilliant pass from Tangai and Dembele to release him. Not really sure what Ederson is doing that far off his line in that circumstance, but it's a great finish by Son, and it sets the game up perfectly for Spurs. That is exactly what Spurs want: that early goal, and we'll sit in, and you come and you come and attack us, and then watch what we do on the counter. 
Uh, City have a goal ruled out when America Laporte scores, but it's ruled out for a handball by Gabby Jesus. I think it's the correct decision again. But I would ask, like, who jumps like that? Like, seriously, who jumps like that? What is Gabby Jesus doing jumping like that? He handles the ball onto his own chest. It's, I think it's the correct decision. I do think the handball rule is a little bit, a little bit harshly imposed in certain circumstances. Like this, this idea that if it touches a hand at all in the build-up, it has to be uh, immediately ruled out. I think that's, I think that's a little bit stupid, to be honest. But in this circumstance, I mean, his, his hand is not in a, a natural position by any stretch. Um, I do think he purposely uses his hand to control the ball because he's not going to control it with his body. So uh, I do, like I said, I do think it's the correct decision. Uh, and like the the second Spurs goal is exactly what we're talking about. They draw City on and they just hit them on the counter. Toby Alderweireld clears the ball right to Harry Kane. Kane gets turned, nobody close to him, drives at the heart of the City defence. He's got Son and Bergvine making runs. And next thing, Giovanni Lacelso, who's come on for Endembele, is making that overlapping run on the left-hand side. Sun slides him in, and it's a tremendous finish. It really is a tremendous finish. I'm not sure, again, what Ederson is doing, uh, charging out at that angle. Like, at that angle, I, I don't know that that's your best course of action as a goalkeeper. I could be wrong, but it obviously wasn't effective in this circumstance. For Spurs, it's it's a brilliant win. And it puts them top of the table. Uh, so they will be thrilled with that. They will believe that they have been the best team in the Premier League this season. I would agree with that. I think it's hard to argue. You look at their performances since the Everton game on the early the, the opening day of the season, and arguably they've they should have won all eight. I mean, they should have beaten Newcastle, won nil up. They get that late penalty given against them for the dire handball. 3-0 up against West Ham and throw it away. But in every other game, they've won and they've looked largely comfortable. Um, Kane and Son are in great form. Endembele's playing well. It's great to see Bergvine back in playing well. It's just clicking for Mourinho's men at the minute. And they are rightly top of the league. They deserve to be there. Now, they're not there by themselves, and we'll get to that, but... I think Spurs have been really good this season. I think they're going to be a contender for the title. I've been saying all along, I think they're nailed on top four. I think anything below third really would be a bit of a disaster for them, given the talent that they have at their disposal, who the manager is, how much they've invested. But all things considered, they'll be really happy with how things have gone so far. And they should be. They really, really should be. Um, A team who won't be happy with how things have gone too far, or so far, um, aside from Manchester City, who are 13, will be Manchester United, but they did get a win uh, in somewhat fortunate circumstances. Um, this was another another really poor performance from United. Uh, just generally, they have been terrible in the Premier League, bar Everton and 20 minutes against Newcastle. Early on in this one, they played some decent football. Uh, the front three were combining quite well, and Martial had a good chance. Rashford looked lively. Bruno looked lively from midfield, but they were quite open at the back, and it was quite obvious from early on that West Brom were going to cause them problems running in behind Harry Kay or Harry Maguire, whose positional sense for a guy that cost eighty million is absolutely shocking, shocking. And not once do I hear Gary Neville mention it. Not once. Each and every time West Brom attacked, they were just looking to pull Harry Maguire out of position and slide the ball in behind him. And Carolyn Grant was making runs into that space over and over and over again. He was really unfortunate in this game, Carolyn Grant, not to get a goal. Um, he was also really unfortunate, I think, to maybe not get a penalty. Right at, early on in the second half, he makes a run in behind Maguire, and Maguire grabs at him and clearly makes contact with him. And I think if Grant is a little bit cynical or a little bit more in touch with the dark arts, shall we say, I think he, he goes to the ground, and I think he probably gets a penalty. And he didn't. He stayed in his feet. It wasn't even looked at. Um, but I do think there was an opportunity there for Grant to... Now, 
he would have been conning the penalty, let's be fair. There wasn't enough contact to put him to the ground. But I do think if he'd gone to the ground, it was clear contact. He may well have gotten a penalty. Um, West Brom do get a penalty. Bruno Fernandes is a judge to have fouled Conor Gallagher in the box. And the referee looks at it and overrules it and decides it's not a penalty. But the replay clearly shows Bruno makes zero contact with the ball and kicks Gallagher full force in the shin. And you can see the referee when he's watching it on the screen say, I think he touches the ball. But he clearly doesn't. He clearly does not touch the ball. At least not from the angles that I've seen. Now, if you've seen a different angle that shows him touch the ball, great. Send it to me. But I didn't see any angle that showed Bruno touch the ball. It's a stonewall penalty. Even Rio Ferdinand, who is incredibly biased towards United, came out afterwards and referee and said it was a definite penalty. It was a nonsense decision to overrule it. Speaking of nonsense decisions, United get a penalty a couple of minutes later. And uh, there's a clear foul by Fred in the build-up. When Fred wins the ball back, he clearly fouls the West Brom player. And it doesn't get called back. It's it's a bizarre bit of refereeing again. And Bruno steps up, takes the first penalty. It gets saved. It gets called for a retake. Correct decision. Again, it is the correct decision. Um, Johnston had taken a big, big step out off his line. Bruno steps up the second time and buries in the back of the net. And it, it, The second one's a really good penalty. The first one was awful. But United were terrible here. They do, they do have a good chance late on where Rashford should score. They did have one or two earlier chances. But so did West Brom. And Callum Robinson was so unlucky with that strike from distance. They had the um, the opportunity a couple minutes before that where De Gea made a really good save with his foot. And the penalty is just is a nonsense. Like, I'm not saying West Brom deserved to win the game, but they definitely deserved a point. They definitely deserved a point. And it comes down to the referee. And we can't blame the VAR in this circumstance. Well, we, we can on the on the Fred one. Without question, we can blame him there. Fred fouls the West Brom player. It should be a free out. The game goes on. United win a penalty. But on the West Brom penalty, it is entirely on the referee. And the referee on this occasion is David Coote. And David Coote, you might remember, is the guy that refereed Liverpool against Everton. He's the guy that didn't bother reviewing... Jordan Pickford's foul on Virgil van Dijk. He looked at the offside and decided that was all he needed to do. He is the guy that let Giovanni Lacelso away with a potential leg-breaking tackle last season. He is the guy that let, um, wasn't it Jimenez, away with a really bad tackle against Leeds this season. He is a guy who is just incompetent. And I'm going to be kind to him and say that he's incompetent. But, and I'm not one for conspiracy theories, David Coote is on Facebook, and David Coote's header photo is a picture of Old Trafford. And before David Coote was a Premier League referee, he worked for the FA in a development role in Manchester. Now again, I'm not one for conspiracy theories. But I don't think this man should be allowed referee Manchester United games. He's not in the header picture. It is just a picture of Old Trafford. Which to me, I don't know why you'd have that header picture unless you're a Manchester United fan. Now I know he's from Nottingham, and I'm sure he tells people he's either a Forest fan or a Notts County fan. But I don't know why you'd have that header picture if you're not a United fan. His profile picture is him at Wembley, but it's him, and it's Wembley. I don't know why you'd have that header picture. His incompetence this season and last has been staggering. And again, I'm being kind and I'm calling him incompetent. I'm not suggesting he's a cheat, but, you know, if you dig a little deeper, 
He's a guy who shouldn't be refereeing Premier League games. It's as simple as that. He's not qualified. He's not good enough. And he's costing teams points. That is a valuable point for West Brom that they have been denied in that game. A point they deserved. And come the end of the season, it could be a crucial point. Um, United will be happy with the win. They won't be happy with the performance. If they win their game in hand, uh, they will go to the heady heights, I believe, of seventh place in the league, uh, assuming Villa don't win theirs. So it's going how it's going with Ollie at the wheel. Uh, none of it is particularly good to watch. Uh, next up then, we had Fulham against Everton. This was the early kickoff on Sunday. Uh, I saw Fulham's uh, team sheet. My initial thought was, what is that? No Mitrovic, no Loftus-Cheek, no Zambo and Guisa. It's your three best players, all of them sitting on the bench. Um, I watched Fulham defend, and my initial thought was, what is that? Uh, They're defending for the first Everton goal is absolutely comical. They're, They're trying to play their way out from the back. And one of their players tries a big switch of the play on the edge of his own area and gives the ball away. And Everton are rootless in that circumstance. One, two, bang. Cross comes in from Richarlison. I don't think Calvert-Lewin knows a whole lot about it, but it, it hits him and goes in. And uh, and that's the kind of goal he scores. Inside the penalty box, one-touch finish. It's what Calvert-Lewin is making a name doing this season. And... God bless him. He is having a good season. Uh, Fulham go down the other end of the field, though, and they start to play quite well. They start to get their passing going. Their movement's looking quite good. They're zipping the ball about. They look confident. And they get themselves a really good goal. A really good goal. It's a lovely team goal. Four or five consistent passes. Nice and quick. Good movement. And Bobby Reed gets in and finishes past Jordan Pickford. Now, could a man with larger, normal-sized arms have saved it? It is quite possible that they could have, but Jordan Pickford made no save and um, didn't come, didn't really come close to making the save here. Um, it's a really, really good goal from Fulham. And at that point, you did sort of think, right, this is an opportunity now for Fulham. one all at home, playing quite well. Everton playing a, a new kind of shape for them. Um, you thought maybe they could take advantage, but Credit to Everton. They really, really ramped things up. And they created two lovely goals. And it's that James Rodriguez to Luca Dina combination that was so successful for them in the early weeks of the season. Again, it creates two goals here. James drifting in, picking up the ball in the number 10 role and sliding the ball to Dina, making his overlapping run. And Dina with two great crosses. One for Calvert-Lewin, one for Abdoulaye Decoré. It's two goals, it's 3-1 Everton, and you have to say, they were well-deserving of it. Fulham looked, at one, like I say, Fulham looked at one point like they might be able to take control of the game, they might be able to, to get the win, but when Everton just decided to step up through the gears, Fulham had no real answer, and those two quick goals, they sort of killed the game off a little bit. Now, the second half was very strange. So Fulham start to make a couple of changes. Mitrovic comes on and um, Loftus-Cheek comes on. And Fulham get a penalty. It's a lovely little bit of play. Mitrovic into Loftus-Cheek. Loftus-Cheek with a nice step over. Let's the ball run across his body. Is moving on to strike and he gets fouled. And I just don't understand the what's going on with Fulham and penalties this season. I really don't understand what's going on with Fulham and penalties. I've talked enough about the Mitrovic shenanigans against Sheffield United, about um, Adam Ola Luckman's fiasco against West Ham. And this is just plain bad luck. I mean, this isn't this isn't a thing where you'd look at um, you'd look at Cavaliero and say you know, you're a clown, you're an idiot, you've, you've taken a bad penalty. He just runs up and slips. He just slips, his left foot goes from underneath him, sides the ball with his right foot off his left, and it goes way up over the bar. And you do have to have some pity for them. You really do have to feel bad for Fulham, because any time it looks like they might get a point or they might 
be turning a corner, getting themselves back on track. They just they get a penalty and they make an absolute hames of it. It's just I don't know that I've seen a team have this much bad luck from a penalty spot in a season. And it's only been, what, we nine games in? Um, the second half, Fulham were a lot better. Once they made those changes, got Mitrovic on the field, got Loftus-Cheek on the field, brought on Zambo a bit later, they really did start to look like a proper team. Um, they had real pace, real purpose to their attack. They get themselves a second goal, uh, def- deflected shot by Loftus-Cheek, goes in, gives them a little bit of belief, but... After that, they didn't really create a whole lot of much. Everton never really looked like they were threatened by Fulham. Um, they took their foot off the gas a little bit, but when they wanted to ramp it up, when they wanted to get themselves a bit more control, they always seemed to have an extra gear to go through. Fulham can can consider themselves unlucky. I do think Everton were deserving winners on the day, but if that penalty goes in, maybe it does end 3-3 and... It, you wouldn't have denied Fulham the point. Let's just say that. You wouldn't have denied them the point. Um, but it's a good win for Everton. Gets them back on track after three uh, three straight defeats. Back into uh, to sixth place. And like like many teams, Everton are going to be really happy with where they are in the league. I don't think they're going to be too happy with the defensive record at the moment. They still have Holgate to come back in. I would have liked to have seen it in that back three. I would have liked to have seen Holgate play. Uh, rather than Michael Keane. I think he would have been more suited to it. Um, I, it'll be interesting to see if, if Carlo sticks with that. If maybe Godfrey, Mina and Holgate becomes his back three. And maybe he goes with a Wobie as a right wing back, Dina as a left wing back. Um, because right back has been an issue for them this season. They can keep the two-man midfield of Decore and Alan, and they don't have to play that third one that's been either Gilfie or uh, Andre Gomes, who've been passengers in a lot of games. They still get the front three on the pitch. So maybe that's what their best move is, to leave out that third midfielder at a third centre-back and just push Dina more advanced and get Iwobi into the team um, rather than playing the right-backs that they have at the moment. It's going to be interesting to see if they stick with that. That's one to watch in the next couple of weeks. Um one of the less exciting games of the weekend was uh, Sheffield United against West Ham. It's a fairly even contest. Both sides created some decent chances. Both sides should have scored more. Well, West Sheffield United should have scored, and West Ham should have scored more. Uh, McBurney guilty of missing, I would say, two good chances. And they need a couple of good half chances that pulled good saves from Fabianski. Uh, Suchek missed a great opportunity. Declan Rice hit the crossbar. West Ham were probably slightly the better team, but it was a better performance from Sheffield United. It was better than what we've seen in recent weeks. Um, the goal from Halar is a, is a great finish. It's a side foot from 20 yards with a, a ton of power and pace just arrows its way into the corner of the net. Um, that's the type of thing he can do. He was much better in this game. This was the best I've seen him this season. West Ham got runners in around him. They had people close to me, wasn't left isolated. So and they were playing the ball to his feet, which was so nice to see. Because a lot of the time they resort to that long ball dreck. They try and play it up to him as if he's some sort of target man. It's not his game. You want to play it into his chest, into his feet. Let him get the ball under control. Get runners in around him. He'll feed them and he'll spin into space. When he was at Eintracht Frankfurt, when he played with Luka Jovic and Antti Rebic, that's what the three of them did. They were really close together. The movement from each of them, the ability of each of them to play each of the three roles. Like you'd often see Suchar, or Haller drop off and play as a number 10, which suited him so well. And Rebic and, and Jovic would play ahead of him. Or you get Jovic to drop in. Rebic was the, the nominal 10, but they could move, interchange, they didn't have a ton of pace between them, but because of their movement and their intelligence, they made it work so quickly, and they made it very hard for anyone to stop them. We saw hints of that in this game. I thought Fornals and Bowen did a great job at getting close, um, close in around Hilaire. 
I thought Suchek was much better at getting forward. I thought uh, Kufal and Masawaka both constantly in advanced positions. Um, it was just a better performance from West Ham than than some of the other ones we've seen. Even games they've they've won more comfortably. I thought they maybe didn't play quite as well as they did in this one in terms of their attacking play. It's another defeat for Sheffield United. I think they can take some confidence from the game. The one thing I, I did know throughout was just a lack of pace. Just a lack of pace in the team. I didn't understand why they didn't bring on Oli Burke. They made the three subs in the game. They brought on John Lundstrom, Jack Robinson, and Rian Brewster. I thought they should have just got brought on uh, brought on Burke instead of Robinson and gone to a back four. I know it's a little bit foreign to them, but they they ended up doing it anyway. Um, uh, there was just opportunities opportunities in the game. If they could have had someone to stretch the play, they could have had someone to run the channels at real pace. I think they could have caused West Brom some problems because that West Ham some problems. That West Ham back three is fine when the ball is in front of them. They're terrified of pace. They're terrified when they made turn and go and try and defend facing their own goal. It was a missed opportunity for Chris Wilder not to put Ollie Burke onto the field and try and use him in the channels. I, I I really thought they could have gone with McBurney up front and Burke and Brewster kind of in and around him uh, for the last 15. And I think they would have caused West Ham real problems. But like I say, it, it was a better performance. They at least showed some fight, some desire. But it, it's a problem now. I mean, nine games, zero wins, only the one point. Very lucky to have that one point. They're currently... Eight points behind Brighton in 16th. So that is a suboptimal position. Now, they are only three points off Fulham in 17th, and that Fulham currently sit in the, the safety spot. But the other teams in the bottom four, like I say, Fulham, them, West Brom, who they'll be confident they're better than. I think Sheffield United will believe that they're better than West Brom. But then Burnley. And Burnley have two games in hand. And if they win either of them... Now, one of them is, is United, so that you don't expect them to win that game. The other one is the game they play um, the game they play today against Crystal Palace. If they win that game, all of a sudden, Burnley go to 17th. And Burnley are four points clear of Sheffield United. So it's becoming a problem for Sheffield United. Chris Wilder's going to need to figure some stuff out. He's still the right man for the job, and if they go down, there should be no even consideration of of a change, in my view. Um, I think they have to stick with him. What he's done there, taking them from League One, unless he wants to leave, I I don't think there can be any question over his future. Um, But they're going to need a win soon. They really are going to need a win soon. So otherwise, it will just become... One of those circumstances where it's almost like a mental block, and they like they've got West Brom next. That is their next game. That's a game they have to win. It's also a game West Brom have to win. Like their next nine games, they really do need to pick up a lot of points. I would say they need to pick up at least twelve points from those nine games just to give themselves a fighting chance at 17th anything above that 16th 15th they need to do better so they need to find wins if we get to Newcastle and they're still where they are and they've only got four or five points I think we'll be writing them off at that point um Next up was Leeds playing host to Arsenal. The most aggressive team in the league against the most passive team in the league. The most temperamental manager against maybe the most calm. And uh, it was a strange game of football, to be completely honest. It was quite dull, uh, a little bit drab at times. Both sides played some okay football. Leeds were definitely the more threatening team, created the better opportunities. Uh, Bernd Leno made multiple 
excellent saves throughout the game. Um, Leeds very unfortunate not to win this game. They hit the post, what, three times? Bamford, Rafinha and Rodrigo all hitting the woodwork. It got it did become very much one-way traffic late on in this game. Um, bar the, the one opportunity where Saka went through one-on-one against Melier. Um, the game really spun on the Nicolas Pepe red card. Look, it's a red card. Of course it's a red card. You can't put your forehead into somebody else and expect to stay on the pitch. It's really soft. Like, it's really soft. Alioski should not be going down in that circumstance. That is play acting to the max. But Pepe shouldn't have done what he did. And he's a fool. And Arteta ripped him after the game, and rightly so. He's going to get a three-game suspension, you'd imagine. And his, his Arsenal career may be in doubt here because it obviously hasn't gone very well thus far. He was getting an opportunity here to show that he could, you know, could play as part of this team, and he's messed it up again for himself. Um, I don't know what to make of him, but what I will, what I will say is, after the game, both Pepe and Alioski have been subjected to horrendous abuse online, racial abuse, um, just vile comments about both both men and it's sickening it's disgusting it has no place in the modern game it has no place in the modern society it never had any place in society anyway but it used to get swept under the carpet because you know that's just how it was but it's it's completely unacceptable now and i don't know what kind of person you have to be to be in the mindset that it's okay to say these things. Like, I don't know what kind of upbringing you have to have had or what kind of lifestyle you lead that leads you to think you can go online and racially abuse anybody, let alone a footballer. I don't know how anybody thinks it's acceptable to say these things. Now, I know we've lived in a world for the last years with the president of America being an outrageous racist as well. And maybe people see him and are emboldened by it. Maybe because of the rise of the radical right in America and in the UK, we've seen you know more and more of these people crawl from under rocks and they think it's okay because, well, Donald Trump says these type of things and implies these type of things and his supporters say them and they all get away with it and this and that. But it's not okay. It really is not okay. And you can you look at these people, and if they're from the UK, you can be one hundred percent certain they're all supporters of Tommy Robinson. And they they probably actually think his name is Tommy Robinson. His name's Stephen Yaxley Lennon. He's not the working class hero that you think he is. He's a scumbag. He's not a journalist. He's he's a, a race baiter, is what he is. And um, if you support him, and you say these type of things to people and and you think it's okay because you see him do it, you're scum as well. And if you've you've sent a a tweet or a a text or you've thought about Nicholas Pepe or Alioski or anybody in this manner, please don't ever listen to this podcast again because I don't want you as part of my audience here. I don't want to have any connection with you at all. I don't understand how people in 2020, given everything we've been through this year, can think it's okay to say these things about anybody. Yes, Pepe is an idiot. Yes, Alioski play-acted. No, it's not okay to go online and put forward racist garbage into into the ether. It's just not acceptable. So as I say, if you've ever done it, if you ever considered it, please stop this podcast now and go away. The last game of the weekend was Liverpool against Leicester. Uh, 
the champions went into this game without most of their team. I think it's fair to say. Uh, no Trent Alexander-Arnold, no Joe Gomez, no Virgil van Dijk. No Jordan Henderson, no Thiago Alcantara, no Mo Salah. Uh, Fabinho forced to play at centre-back. So, you know, a team patched together in some ways, but a team that performed brilliantly. An absolutely comprehensive performance from the Reds. Uh, dominant throughout. Complete control of the game from start to finish. Despite Jamie Carragher's best efforts to make it seem like Leicester were, you know, competitive in this game, they were not. The only real opportunities Leicester had were where they isolated on James Milner, who was playing out of position at right back. That accounted to two chances, uh, neither of which led to a whole lot of anything. Um, Liverpool were, were brilliant back to front. Defensively, Fabinho and Matip read the game perfectly. Never gave Jamie Vardy a sniff of the ball. Uh, Andy Robertson was outstanding, as he has been all season. He's got to be a, a contender for Player of the Year so far. As I've said multiple times, Harry Kane is, without question, the front runner for Football of the Year this year. But Andy Robertson should be in the, the conversation. He's definitely been Liverpool's best player so far this season. Um, Milner played really well at right back. Later on, he would move into midfield and, and give a good showing of himself there as well. The starting midfield was Curtis Jones and Naby Keita as the eights with Ginny Wijnaldum in the holding role. All three of them brilliant. Curtis Jones, the best performance of his career thus far. Really mature. Just looked like a guy who'd been in the team 10 years. So good on the ball. Defensively, he was right on it. Used the ball well. Was always progressive. Always open to the ball. And every time he got the ball, he wanted to play it forward. He wanted to make things happen. He um, played one stunning crossfield ball for Andy Robertson in the build-up to the second goal. Liverpool went ahead when Johnny Evans put the ball through his own net. Not that he knew a whole lot about it. A James Milner corner. Evans was a bit a bit preoccupied wrestling with Sadio Mane and the ball hits him in the back. They had flies past Casper Schmeichel. Uh, poor old Johnny Evans, who I do like. I think he's very underrated, but not, not a good night for him. Um, the second goal comes from that Jones pass to, to Robertson, right to left. Robertson skins all bright and gets down the flank. A lovely cross. And Diogo Jota coming right to left. Lovely flick, glancing header. Uh, there's nothing Casper Schmeichel can do. Casper Schmeichel on the night, very, very good. Made numerous great saves. Seemed to be locked into a battle with Bobby Firmino and Sadio Mane. Um, largely came out on top, it must be said. Though... Firmino did get his goal um, in the second half. Another Milner corner and uh, Bobby rising like a salmon from a river to head home. I will say he should have scored before that. I'm really not sure how he didn't. He hit the post. He had one cleared, uh, not off the line, behind the line. One, mil one millimeter, no, not sorry, not one millimeter, one centimeter of the ball had not crossed the line. That's how close he came to scoring earlier on. One centimeter. Um, great defensive clearance, but you feel sorry for Bobby. But for Liverpool on the night, like I say, complete dominant performance. Quality defending. Re read the game really well. Controlled the game from the back. Excellent in midfield. The movement and, and play up front was really good to see as well. The only negative for Liverpool on the night Naby Keita picks up another injury. It's a big, big blow for him. He's just worked his way back. Now, what I will say, he hadn't played in five weeks. He went away on the international break, and his manager played him 95 minutes twice. It's just, it's it's atrocious. Like, you, you can't, you can't really justify Doing that, I understand that Guinea are not very good, and I understand he's by far the greatest player they've ever pr produced, and I understand that they need him in the team. But this is the third time he's gotten injured, either while with them or when he's come back because they've overplayed him. And there's nothing Liverpool can do; it's completely out of their control. It's completely out, completely out of his control. He just does what he's asked. Um, it's a big blow for him. He's been so unfortunate. When he plays, he's so good. When he plays, when he is fully fit and fully on it, 
There's no question he's part of Liverpool's best 11. No question at all. He is brilliant on the ball. He's brilliant off the ball. But every time he gets himself in the team and looks like he's going to start turning things on, he gets hurt. And he wasn't hurt before he joined Liverpool. Didn't have these problems at Leipzig. Didn't have them at Salzburg. He's just been so unlucky. But um, I think Klopp will, will, will stick with him. because I think Klopp has great faith in him. I think Klopp sees the talent. Everybody who see, should see the talent. I mean, there's idiots who don't. They just cry about the injuries. But Naby Kate is a hell of a player when he's fit. And the thing is, he was playing really well last night. He was Him and Curtis Jones, to me, were the two best players in pitch up until Naby got hurt. And after the game, you just got people going, oh, he's okay, but he got injured again. He wasn't okay. He was really good. Yes, he got injured. It's not his fault. He doesn't ask to get injured. He doesn't want to be injured. He wants to play football. Um, Yeah, it, people just overlook how good he is because he gets hurt. It's a shame. Curtis Jones, for me, man of the match. Andy Robertson, a close second. Two centre-backs, both excellent as well. Ginny Wijnaldum, understatedly a fantastic performance in that number six role. The others seem a lot more comfortable with him there. Um, Jones and, and Naby in particular. Jones, like I say, that's the best I've seen him play for Liverpool. It's the best I've seen him play. He was just tremendous last night. Really, really mature performance. And if he continues to play like that, he is going to make a case by the end of the season that he should be a starter. Um, and that's it. That is the eight games that took place this weekend. Uh, tonight, we have Burnley against Crystal Palace. If you can smell something strange, that is the waft of a nil-nil draw. That is what that smell is. That is that aroma. Um, and Wolves against Southampton. Southampton will try and make that an entertaining game. Wolves will not. Wolves will very much try and, you know, I suppose they'll try and Burnley versus Crystal Palace that game. Um Two two interesting games though. Burnley need a win badly. Palace are in good form. Both sides doing well in the other game. Wolves and and Southampton, particularly Southampton, who've been in a great run of late. So they'll be interesting enough games. The Burnley Palace game, I think, is going to be a slog to watch, but it is what it is. These are, these are sacrifices that we make. Um. So yeah, I'll be back tomorrow to to talk about them and. And anything else that goes on. Um, I need to dig deeper into David Coote. I need to find out more. I need to find out more of the horrendous decisions that he's made. But uh, it doesn't look good for him. It does does not look good. It's not a good look to have that, that Facebook header and the decisions you've made. It really is not a good look. Uh, I'll be back tomorrow. Thank you, as always, for listening. Thank you to Guy Drinkle for his great help on this podcast. And thank you to Fox Hunt for that title music. See you tomorrow. Bye-bye. Podcast Network.